Well, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, we've got a jam-packed session for you over the next 60 minutes, so I want to make sure we get through all of our content today. Um, if you folks have questions afterwards, um, or there's something specific you want to learn about, uh, we'll be outside uh, here for you know 10, 10 minutes or so, and uh, we'll make sure we can address any of the questions that you may or may not have that may be specific to your situation or something you haven't heard yet, uh, but we'll make sure to get your questions answered. So uh, this session is about architecting governance at enterprise scale with Goldman Sachs. Uh, my name is Ray. I'm the product manager for AWS organizations. And I have here on the stage with me Ming and Tate, uh, who are from Goldman. Um, and we're super excited for this session today, um, where you get to learn a little bit more about um, why you should be using a multi-account AWS environment. Uh, you'll talk, we'll talk through some seven best practices uh, that AWS recommends. And then you'll get to see them in action in a real production environment with Goldman Sachs. And at the end, we'll recap everything that we've learned uh, together over the last 60 minutes. And then um, you know, we'll have Q&A in the back if you have questions. Um, before we get started, there are a couple of related breakout sessions that I want to point you to. Um, one of the first ones I was actually uh, recommending to a gentleman uh, in the front row who had questions about Control Tower. Um, but basically, uh, MGT 307, Chalk talk about control tower organizations. Bring all of your questions that you may uh, have. And we've got a couple of repeats on every single day to make sure that everybody gets in uh, with their questions. Um, a couple of other sessions available as well. I'll leave this up for another couple seconds if you wanted to snap a picture. Um, I know it's a lot of text to read through, so. Awesome. And finally, there's one additional session I want to point you to, um, SEC 207. Uh, my vice president, Jim Scharf, uh, will be on stage with one of our principal product managers talking about everything within AWS Identity, which organizations falls under. And you can learn more about the industry changes that are, uh, that are modifying how AWS is approaching identity for customers. And we'll be announcing new features uh, that makes identity, access control, and resource management uh, easier for you as a customer. So I would definitely make sure not to miss that. That's later this afternoon in a couple of hours. Cool. So getting started with a well-architected AWS environment. As a product manager for organizations, the number one question that I get asked a lot, especially for customers that are starting on their AWS cloud journey, is why should I be using a multi-account environment? A lot of customers start off their journey in a single account. They've been creating resources and doing access control in a single account. But what we've discovered over time is that as customers scale their accounts, uh, their account within an enterprise environment, they start having to grow to multiple accounts for various different reasons. The first one is these customers end up with having many teams. And so you may want to start launching multiple accounts so your individual teams aren't stomping over one another in a single account. And it simplifies your permissions management because now you don't have to sort through one particular account to provide access. Uh, for isolation, um, it's a lot easier to be able to isolate things by account for your security purposes, whether that's because you've got different teams that don't need access to the same types of resources, which are now sharded across multiple accounts, or there's a different security profile. You may have some production accounts that you want to lock down more heavily than your development accounts. For your security and compliance controls, there are different applications that have different controls around them. For example, a common example is for PCI compliance, it's a lot easier to point to your auditor and say, these are all of our PCI resources in the single account, 
rather than trying to explain across different accounts, these are the resources across multiple accounts, and this is how we've secured access to them and why they're PCI compliant. From a business process standpoint, um, we've got complete, you may have completely different business units, and this, uh, using multiple accounts is a great way to group these uh, business units uh, accounts together. And so you may have an account for application one, or multiple accounts for application one, depending on your uh, different environments, and then application two, line of business one, line of business two. And finally, billing. Uh, an AWS account is the only true way to separate items at a billing level, and it's a lot easier for you to manage your bill when things are broken down by account. So much like before when I talked about different applications having their own accounts, now you know all the resource costs and spend in a particular account belongs to a certain part of your business, rather than having to sort through uh, one account and figuring out which business is paying for which pieces in here and how do I do all of those kinds of chargebacks. And so I want to go ahead and introduce seven best practices that we have for a multi-account environment. And I'll talk a little bit about them at a high level in terms of recommendations. And then you'll go ahead and see how those are implemented in practice uh, with Goldman Sachs. So the first one is making sure that you start off with a thoughtful architecture of your account structure. That will set you up for success as you continue to grow and scale your business and ensure that the decisions that you make today don't start limiting you in the future. You want to have a strong account creation and provisioning pipeline that will allow you to quickly spin up new accounts for new parts of your business and ensure that they're ready to be set up and good to go starting from day one when you need to vend them out to teams within your company. You want to be able to centrally manage account access and permissions. We know identity and access management can sometimes be hard, and using the processes that we have in place for your environment, we can make it a lot simpler, and I'll talk a little bit more about how that works. You'll want to be able to define organization-wide defaults. You may have simple things that you may want to apply globally across all of your accounts, and this is a great way to do it. From a security and remediation perspective, you'll want to be able to have centralized security and be able to respond in a remediation fashion to everything that happens in the environment that you manage. Um, you want to have aggregated compliance and monitoring, so you've got one place to go to to look up everything that's happening in your AWS environment. And finally, you want to be able to have central cost optimizations and insights uh, across your organization so you can keep tabs on how much you're spending, how that's changing over time, and any additional information you may want on a cost or usage perspective. I'll come back to the slide at the end, and I'll leave it up um, as well for those of you that are taking pictures. So starting off with number one, a thoughtful architecture of an account structure. And the biggest thing that I tell customers when they come to me and ask me, how should I structure my organization or how should I structure my environment, is it, it really depends. You need to choose a structure that meets your business needs. And I like to describe it a lot to a vehicle. And so we've got many different types of vehicles. We've got sedans, we've got SUVs, we've got 4x4s, trucks. They all serve very different purposes, and they're all designed to fit a very specific use case. And much the same way as you have your account structure, different types of businesses, depending where, where they are in the account lifecycle or what they're trying to achieve, will have different types of account structures that best suits what they're trying to accomplish. The questions that I recommend a lot of customers ask, especially as they're going through an account architecture stage, is to think about how many business units they're going to grow to and how that's going to grow over time. What are the commonalities around their account guardrails? So they can go ahead and group those accounts together 
um, in order to apply security policies and other types of policies to them. And finally, how much of this process can you automate? Because it both reduces the human, uh, the human error factor and allows you to operate a lot faster than if you had manual processes. And so for those of you just now getting started on AWS, we have a starter AWS multi-account framework that we recommend for new customers. And so talking our way through this, um, a couple of accounts that we recommend. First, in terms of functional organizational units, you'll have your security accounts and you'll have your infrastructure accounts. Those serve as the core part of your foundational backend that runs your environment on AWS. So you can see a lot of things that are probably pretty familiar, such as a log archive account, security tooling accounts, uh, shared services. And additional OUs, uh, or organizational units, these are the places where your business is run. And we provide recommendations for two of them. A place where you store all of your production workloads that you're working on uh, for your software development, and a place where you can store all of your sandbox accounts. And so your sandbox accounts are those that say, for example, at this event or after this event, you may have developers that want to go play around with all the new cool things that we've launched over, over this week. That gives them a place to do that. There's a fixed spending limit, disconnected from your network. Uh, it's probably got a less strict security profile so they can actually potentially access those new services that just came online. Um, and gives them a place to play with. And then your workloads are places where you keep all of your software development accounts. And this is a great place to get started. But as you grow your business, you're obviously going to grow to more and more um, organizational units. You're going to grow more structure. You're going to grow more accounts. And so we have sat down, a lot of us across AWS, and thought about what's the right way for customers to be growing their uh, environment. And we've come up with a recommended AWS multi-account framework. If you go to any of our different sessions, uh, you'll probably see this uh, a couple of times. Uh, but this is what we recommend. And I'll have the same caveat that I said before, which is see whether or not this, uh, this applies to your business and pick and choose the pieces uh, that fit best. And so for example, here you see the sandbox and workloads account. You may not need to go all the way to the right and have a deployments account, or you could have it depending on how advanced you want to go. But this is a way for you to get started, take a look at some of the best practices that we recommend, uh, and see how they fit your business. And so, um, yeah, I'll have that up there. I see a couple more cameras taking pictures. All right. And so for number two, we've got account creation and provisioning pipeline. And so the way you want to think about this is you can use the organization's create account API to really quickly spin up and create a new AWS account in your organization. You can then go ahead and use service quotas, which was a new service that we, a uh, new feature that we launched uh, earlier this year that allows you to basically automatically request for uh, quota increases for things that you may need off the bat for this new account, say EC2 instances, uh, IAM policy lim uh, quota increases, uh, or a whole bunch of other ones. And those can automatically be submitted as soon as the uh, organization account gets created. And finally, using CloudFormation stack sets, you can go ahead and provision that account as soon as it gets created. You can deploy your uh, security roles, you can deploy policies, everything else that you may need to be in that account in order for it to be used uh, by your developers. And what I'm super excited to announce is that coming soon, there will be a deeper CloudFormation integration with the organizations that will simplify the permissions management required and allow you to deploy CloudFormation stacks across your organization as well as organizational units very easily.
For number three, uh, centrally managing identities and account access. The recommended approach is to store your user identities in your central identity store, um, whether that's Active Directory on-prem, manage Active Directory in the cloud, um, Azure AD, uh, it, uh, or the single sign-on user directory. And you can use AWS single sign-on or another uh, identity provider solution uh, to manage user permissions to accounts. And so I picked single sign-on uh, because um, earlier this, uh, early, late last week, we actually announced that uh, single sign-on is now compatible with Azure AD, as well as a whole bunch of SAML 2.0 IDPs. So if you have your identities in Azure AD, you can now automatically connect to that with single sign-on and very easily provision access to your accounts uh, from those users stored in, that, uh, in the directory. For number four, defining and enforcing organization-wide defaults. Uh, you have, can use service control policies to define global guardrails, which I'll go into in a little bit. You can do things like turning on uh, Amazon EBS encryption right off the bat, and also, for example, blocking Amazon S3 public reads and writes. So two examples of service control policies that we provided you today. The first one is uh, denying access based on the requested region. Uh, so this is a very popular one with customers, especially those that are operating in Europe, that may want to prevent uh, resources from being launched in anything but the central regions. And so you can see that part highlighted uh, in the red over there, which basically we're going to deny anything that's not in the requested region of EU Central 1 or EU West 1. Uh, if you look in the not action block, uh, those are there because there are some services that are global um, and they, uh, they can't be restricted to regions or else they won't work. Um, so that's why that is there. It's not a uh, list of all of them, but that is uh, a lot of the usual ones that customers run into. And finally, the second one uh, is the ability to prevent modification on IAM admin role. And so for things like resources, uh, say I've got an administrator role there, I don't want anyone in a local account to be able to play with it. Uh, that's what that's there for. For number five, central security and remediation. Uh, you can set up Amazon Guard Duty uh, to provide network threat detection. Um, and again, what will be coming soon that we're super excited about is you'll be able to centrally enable this across all of your accounts in your organization and have this auto-enabled on new accounts so you don't have to uh, perform the handshake that's required today. For, uh, you can use Amazon SNS to notify yourself or multiple teams about security incidents um, for those that are aggregated in the security account, which Goldman Sachs, will, uh, my colleagues over here, will talk about in depth about how they do that. And finally, you can use AWS Lambda to build things to automatically fix misconfigured resources. For aggregated compliance and monitoring, you can use AWS CloudTrail to enable organization-wide trails. And the cool thing about this feature with organizations is that it's immutable in the local accounts, so it can't be turned off or modified. You can use Amazon CloudWatch logs to quickly query for information uh, from your CloudWatch. And you can use AWS configs both to deploy config rules centrally as well as to aggregate the findings from uh, the config rules that you've deployed in a central place so you can go ahead and see them in one location. And finally, uh, for central cost optimization, billing, and insights, organizations provides you the ability to consolidate costs and usage across all of your accounts. And then you can then download your cost and usage reports and import them into internal chargeback, chargeback tools so you can do your own math on them or your own divvying up if you so choose. 
And finally, you can gain insights and manage your spend using AWS Cost Explorer and AWS Budgets. And so an example of that here is I've gone ahead and built a graph in Cost Explorer that shows my monthly breakdown by member account. And so you can see, then you can see your spend, how it's been changing over time, any spikes or peaks, all split out by member account. Um, so you can get those costs uh, account by account. And so at this point in time, I'm going to go ahead and hand this over uh, to my colleague, Ming, um, who will talk a little bit more in depth about how Goldman Sachs is uh, implementing these best practices in their environment today. Thank you, Raymond. Let's start with a little bit of uh, introduction, who we are. Goldman Sachs is a leading global investment bank that provides a wide range of financial services to a diversified client base, including financial institutions, corporations, governments, as well as individuals. Founded in 1869, the firm is headquartered in New York and maintains offices at major financial centers around the world. And this year, we celebrate the 150th anniversary of the firm. Despite the firm's long history, innovation is at, Goldman Sachs, it's a, at the heart of Goldman Sachs culture. Many of you might not know this, but one in every three employees at Goldman Sachs is an engineer. That's over 30% of the firm's population. The reason being, the, org the engineering organizations at Goldman Sachs include the various platform teams in the core engineering division, as well as all the technology teams that's embedded in all the businesses working alongside with investment bankers, traders, as well as other financial professionals. Tate and I are from the public cloud engineering team. Our team is one of the platform teams at core engineering division. Our main focus is on cloud architecture, governance, as well as security. And we have been partnering with AWS to provide reliable, scalable, and innovative solutions to our clients, both internal as well as external. And today we are honored to share the stage with Raymond to talk about how we architected um, cloud governance at enterprise scale. Before we dive into the cloud governance pillar at Goldman Sachs, I'll let us I'll like to set the stage by defining how we have designed our enterprise environment, adhering to many of the best practices that Raymond has outlined before. At a very high level, in our environment, we have two distinct AWS organizations. The organization on the left is for individual developer sandbox account. This is where a developer gets to experiment and learn new AWS services in a safe environment, insulated from the rest of the firm. There's no network connectivity to the firm. There's no business data in this environment, and there's no firm's intellectual property at all. We have over 1,000 developer sandbox accounts today in that environment. And the organization on the right is for application deployment. This is where developers and teams will take the learnings they glean from the sandbox environment and implement business solutions for the firm. We have over hundreds of accounts today in that environment. While these two environments, these two organizations serve very distinct purposes, they're set up the same way 
with centralized management accounts for common administrative purposes. For example, the master account is the payer account for the organizations. The billing accounts is where we run our centralized billing service. Logging account is where we run, is where we centralize all the logs at, at the organization level. Security account is where we centralize all the security logs. Last but not least, the IM account is where we run our internal credential broker, which I'll explain later how it's gonna solve some of the identity as well as access management challenges. As you can see, we have close to 2,000 accounts in our environment. How do we keep thousands of accounts, configuration of them consistent over time? We rely heavily on automated and continuous processes. And the operative words here being automated and continuous. Because if you have any manual process at all in managing your environment, or any processes that run only once when the account is created, you're guaranteed to have, if you have thousands of accounts, you're guaranteed to have thousands of accounts with slightly different configuration over time. That is impossible to manage. One of those processes, automated processes that we rely on is the new account creation processes. When a new AWS account is needed at Goldman Sachs, users will be directed to submit a request in an internal portal. As part of the request, the user needs to provide a valid employee ID if it's for a developer's account, or a valid application ID if it's for application deployment. And the valid application ID has to be from the internal application inventory that I'll explain later. As part of the workflow, the request will go through first direct manager approval. Once that's passed, you will then go through our internal entitlement platforms, if it's an application account, to make sure that the requester has proper entitlement to create account, AWS account, for that application. If the request passes all the approval and verification, it will be routed to the account registry service that will orchestrate the entire AWS account creation using the AWS organization API. As you can see, in this automated process, every single account at Goldman Sachs is created the same way in the appropriate organization right, that fits its purpose. So we have solved the first part of the problem is that all the account looks the same when they are created. But how do we keep the account looking the same over time? This is where the continuous account bootstrap process comes in. The bootstrap process is run after the account is created and is run continuously while the account state remains active. It sets up two very important configurations for us. The first one, it sets up centralized logging and security event accounts. First it does is that it redirects all the CloudTrail logs as well as ConfigNet snapshot to the centralized logging account managed by the platform team. The next thing it does is that it redirects Macy's as well as uh, GuardDuty events to the centralized security account. The reason we do this is that we don't want to run into the situation if there's an incident invest investigation and we are not able to find appropriate logs or events because either they are not set up correctly or they have been deleted by the user. 
Remember, those centralized logging and security account is managed by the platform team. Users do not have direct access to it. The second configuration that the continuous account bootstrap process set up is to set up common roles with standard policies. In this example, we'll set up two common roles, right? The read-only role and the read-write role. And they're all based on a standard read-only permission template that's managed centrally by us. The benefit of this setup might not be immediately apparent to you, but it's a critical part of our enterprise environment. The reason being, at Goldman Sachs, we use a whitelist approach to enable services, AWS services. So if a new service needs to be added to the whitelist or removed from the whitelist, this process will ensure that the same whitelist is enforced on every single account in our environment. Now that you have the appropriate backdrop of how we have designed our enterprise environment, let's dive into the first cloud governance pillar, security. Let's first talk about some challenges in enterprise environment. In an environment with hundreds of accounts and applications, it can be a very frustrating experience for users to remember yet another password. Or worse, if the user takes the shortcut and use the password, the same password everywhere. And from the governance point of view, it would mean that yet another password to rotate periodically or another password complexity policy to manage. All around, not a very good situation to have. In addition to the password challenges, you also have the challenge of maintaining different level of access for a user for a different AWS account. In this example, Alice in, from HR might need read-write access to payroll account, but only need read access for the expense account. And what happens when Alice moves from HR to legal? We'll then have to remove all the HR account access for Alice and create new access to the, to the legal contract account for Alice. And what if Alice leaves the firm tomorrow? We have to remove all AWS access for Alice immediately. Now, multiply these scenarios hundreds of times on a daily basis you see how unmanageable the situation can get. At Goldman Sachs, we address these issues and challenges by having an always up-to-date application inventory management system. This is an internal application inventory that defines the relationship between business unit, in this case, HR and legal, and applications, users, and the different roles that the user must have. So in the example here, in HR, you have two applications, payroll and expense. You have one user called Alice, and Alice needs read-write access for payroll, need only read access for expense account. And Bob is in legal, and he needs only read access for the contract applications. If Alice moves to legal tomorrow, all we have to do is to update the internal inventory systems. And if Alice leaves the firm, we just remove her metadata from the internal system. There is really nothing we need to change on the AWS side, right? I'll go into a little bit de detail about how that's set up 
by using federated identity. So let's take a use case here. We'll keep the same example. Alice needs AWS console access to the payroll AWS account. Simple. She needs rewrite access. So what will Alice do in, a, in this case? Alice will browse through an internal portal that will only show application that she has access to. In this case, she'll see probably two applications, payroll and expense. And then when she clicks on the payroll link, what, what happens behind the scene is that her request will be routed to the internal credential broker that will authenticate her using her corporate password against the on-prem di uh, Active Directory. And also checks, make sure that, you know, to figure out what level of access that she needs to the payroll account based on the internal application uh, data. When everything checks out, the in internal credential broker uses AWS STS service to assume into the read-write role in the payroll account. It might not be very obvious on the slide, but you have to remember, as I described before, the read-write role already exists in the payroll account. That's part of the account creation process as well as the bootstrap process, right? So Alice is simply assuming into an existing common role that has been set up for the account. When everything checks out, the STS service will return the appropriate temporary credentials, and Alice will have 60-minute access to the console to the appropriate account at the appropriate level. I'll now hand over to Tate to talk about the other aspects of the security pillar. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Ming. Um, so Ming covered the first theme under security, and I want to add a couple more themes to this. Um, first of all is infrastructure and data protection. So I want to start out by covering some of the common challenges that are seen at the enterprise scale for protecting your infrastructure and protecting your data. Um, so first, uh, a big challenge that we see is setting a baseline uh, security framework that's both comprehensive enough to cover all your use cases, but also um, you know, flexible enough to ensure basic security across your accounts. Um, another thing is limiting user actions that allow users to circumvent your security framework and also to comply with any regulatory requirements you might have. And then finally, um, just ensuring that your data is encrypted both in transit and at rest. Um, so some solutions that we have in this space, um, we have a bunch of organization default settings enabled. Um, and I'm, so some examples of this, um, we have EBS encryption enabled by default. So for new EBS volumes, um, they come up with encryption by default. Um, and then S3, um, we have a setting enabled so that um, S3 bucket policies um, block any policies with uh, public read and write. Um, next is detective controls. Um, and I'll discuss detection a little more later on. Um, but we use um, a series of detective rules to uh, enforce both encryption of data as well as prevent exfiltration of our data out of our accounts. Um, and then service control policies. Um, we use those as well to block certain API actions. Um, so I have an example there at the right, it might be a little bit difficult to read, um, but this is a policy we have enabled for our organizations. Um, it blocks um, the disabling of the config recorder, which we use for logging. Um, it, uh, prevents from disabling guard duty, 
guard duty monitoring, and it also prevents users from uh, leaving the organization. Um, and so we're looking to expand our use of SCPs to limit certain API actions across our accounts. Um, and so the next theme I want to discuss uh, relating to security is how we detect and respond to incidents in our environments. Um, and so in a multi-account environment, you're seeing a, lot, um, a much larger volume of log information. Um, but only a subset of these logged events and alerts need to be passed on to your users. Um, next, uh, you may have several stakeholder teams um, that want visibility into your cloud environments. This is a lot easier in a single account environment because you can just notify the account owner. Um, but in an enterprise, um, you may have several stakeholders. Um, and then the time gap between um, the notification of an issue and resolving the issue. In some cases, any amount of wait time to fix an issue is too much, and you need to resolve an issue as soon as possible. Um, so I'll start off by talking about detective controls that we have. So we have a series of Lambda functions um, that function as security rules, and this process is gonna run on a periodic basis. Um, and these rules are determined by, uh, through a collaborative effort between our team, our technology risk team, and our business unit teams that are developing applications in the cloud. We then prioritize our rules by severity. Um, so we have a low, medium, and high categorization, um, and I have some examples of that there at the right. Um, guard duty. Uh, we use guard duty for out-of-the-box network threat detection. Um, and we enable this um, monitoring through our bootstrap process that Ming mentioned before. Um, so we have a guard duty produces a numeric uh, severity rating for each incident. And we map this into our low, medium, and high buckets for uh, categorization. So once we've detected misconfigurations, um, we need to respond to the incidents that we found. Uh, and there are a couple ways that we do this. I'll start off by talking about um, notification for incidents. Um, so incidents, security events are aggregated in our security account. Um, so the detection uh, lambda output will forward this into our security account into an SNS topic, um, which will alert the teams that want visibility um, into our security incidents. Then, um, this granularity of email alerts can be adjusted based on the team that's receiving them. Some teams want to receive every alert, and other ones just want the highest level. And so we're able to use that low, medium, and high prioritization um, to uh, change the granularity of the alerts that are received. And in addition to varying by rules, the severity will also vary by organization. So as Ming mentioned, our sandbox environment doesn't have any production code or any proprietary data. Um, and so generally incidents in this environment are lower priority than um, incidents that are um, dealing with our production organization. Um, and then another way that we respond, in addition to notifying the teams, we also have auto-remediation processes. Um, so auto-remediation is going to fix particularly time-sensitive issues. So the output from the detection lambda function is used for the remediation function, um, and it's gonna make the appropriate API calls to resolve the issues. 
Uh, and this works best for resources that can easily be uh, reconfigured in place um, without user intervention. Um, and so I wanted to talk through end-to-end -end, um, an example of uh, an incident and how we would respond. So uh, in this case, we have an unencrypted S3 bucket that's been provisioned. Um, so this will be detected in uh, our detection function, and it will uh, then notifications will be sent out to the appropriate teams, and then the remediation function will run the put bucket encryption call on the S3 bucket to automatically encrypt it without having to consult the user. So we've discussed um, our critical needs for security and how we respond to those, but what is compliance? This is gonna be our second pillar um, in our presentation. And we view compliance as more of a dynamic process. So we're constantly trying to um, increase, we're trying to expand our defenses and catch issues earlier. Um, so some challenges that you may see with compliance. One of the biggest challenges for us is maintaining a set of policies that will apply. Um, so we have more and more business units moving applications to the cloud every day, and those business units are using a wider variety of AWS services. Um, each service needs to have a set of best practices associated with it, and the best practices that we have in place need to have policies in place to enforce that. So we need to have policies to ensure that new resources comply with our best practices, but we also need to ensure that existing resources stay in compliance as they're being used and changed. Um, and then logging creates another set of challenges. So investigating incidents across multiple accounts and um, parsing through large volumes of log information for your whole organization can be very difficult at the enterprise scale. Um, so this diagram gives kind of a recap of our config management system from before. So the detection lambda function uh, is parsing through AWS config snapshots for each account. Um, and each of these functions is gonna be looking for a different misconfiguration. And then again, it's going to notify the proper teams and then the remediation Lambda function will run. So we developed this solution before AWS offered the ability to provision config rules across an organization. Um, and so we're currently in the process of migrating to using AWS config rules um, for configuration management. And so I wanted to highlight some of the advantages that we're anticipating as we're going through this process. Um, so first is the set of standard managed rules that are available out of the box. Um, this is gonna reduce some of the time that we've spent on writing new policies. Um, and it will also reduce the time that it will take for our business units to adopt new services. Um, in addition, we'll also have less maintenance required on our existing policies um, and it will cut out uh, the maintenance that needs to be performed for the config snapshot pipeline to parse those. Um, next, most AWS managed config rules are event driven. So they're triggered only when configuration changes are made to a particular resource. And this is important because rules are only running when the relevant resources are changed. They're not running on off hours or when nothing's been changed. This will also result in faster detection time for misconfigurations. Um, and then finally, one of the biggest incentives for us to move was the pricing model change. So it changed from uh, per rule pricing to a per evaluation pricing. 
Um, and then another integral part of our compliance strategy is using infrastructure as code. Um, and I'll touch on a couple of the key benefits that we see here. Um, first, our infrastructure changes follow the same mature pipeline as our application code changes. So it goes through the full code review process. Um, all of the infrastructure's code is version controlled and can easily be rolled back. Um, it's easy to recreate and rebuild infrastructure as needed. Um, also, our team has created a set of reusable modules that's pre-configured to meet our best practices. And we're hoping that users can use these as building blocks to provision their cloud infrastructure. Um, and our goal there is to make um, setting up a resource the path of least resistance for our clients. Um, and finally, uh, we have a series of embedded compliance checks that run over our infrastructure as code. Um, and this blocks the provisioning of any infrastructure that doesn't meet these checks. Um, and our, with all of these changes, we are hoping to kind of reduce the strain on our detection and auto-remediation functions as um, misconfigured resources wouldn't even be provisioned in the first place. All right, and then for a couple of other strategies that we have in compliance, um, as Ming mentioned, we have the set of standard IAM roles um, for read-only and read-write access for each account. Um, and the IAM policies behind these roles function as sort of an allow list of actions that can be taken by users with the particular role. And then for logging, um, all of our log events are aggregated in our centralized logging account in a single organization level cloud trail log. Um, obviously that's a lot of raw data for thousands of accounts. So CloudWatch Insights enables us to run um, large uh, complex queries over this large volume of information. All right, I'm gonna turn it back over to Ming to discuss the third pillar. Thank you. Thank you, Tate. So the third pillar is cost optimization. Let's talk about the challenges again. Um, in an environment as diverse as Goldman Sachs, right, the biggest challenge for budget management is the varying cloud adoption right, across the different businesses in, in, at Goldman Sachs. On one extreme, we could have a business unit that already have production workload running on hundreds of thousands of compute units in AWS. On the other extreme, we could have a business unit that's just started looking at AWS. So imposing a strict budget threshold could risk disrupting business operations, right? And undo the very reason why the benefit of using AWS in the first place, which is to be able to dynamically, quickly scale up and down to meet uh, changing business requirements. So instead, we focus on providing transparent and timely reports, cost attributions back to the businesses so that the businesses will be able to track, monitor, and manage their budget over time. The way we do that is with a centralized billing service. We rely heavily on the AWS cost and usage report on a daily basis the report will be deposited to the billing S3 bucket in our centralized billing account. And we use Amazon Athena to enrich those reports with our internal data sources, which include the application inventory systems that I mentioned before. So at the end of the day, cost incurred in a specific AWS account 
can be attributed to either an individual, if it's a developer's account, or an application, if it's an application deployment account. And both of those can be mapped back to a particular business unit. In this example, it could be HR, it could be legal, right? So, and because the billing service is integrated with our internal chargeback system, the report that's produced will be viewed in the context, not just for the AWS costs, but all the costs right, that the business unit incurred. Therefore, the business leadership will be able to take a look at that and be able to manage and track their, their um, AWS budget to meet changing business requirements. Just to recap, we talk about the three major cloud governance pillar at Goldman Sachs, the first one being security. We address the identity and access management challenges by leveraging federated identity, as well as our internal broker and our internal application inventory. We ensure infrastructure and data protection by using organization-wide default, as well as service control policies. For detective control, we categorize guard duty events to, in, to isolate incident from noise, number one, and also, we auto-remediate any issues that we could using AWS Lambda, and we use simple notification service to notify responsible teams to do manual remediation if required. For compliance, we show you our homegrown configuration management system and why we have decided to move to AWS config rules and the benefits that it provides. We talk about the benefit of infrastructure as code and how a carefully curated module repository can promote compliance by embedding best practices in the reusable modules themselves. For cost optimization, due to varying requirements uh, across cloud requirements across the businesses, instead of imposing strict budget threshold and risk disrupting business operations, we are focused on providing timely and transparent cost attribution for the businesses to monitor and manage their own budget. We hope our approach to cloud governance at Goldman Sachs sheds some light on the common challenges faced in enterprise environments and how they can be addressed. Hope this has been helpful. I'll now hand it back to Ray to conclude the session. Ray? Great, thank you. So as we had talked about at the beginning, uh, we introduced seven best practices for a scalable multi-account environment. Again, they're thoughtful architecture of your account structure, account creation and provisioning pipeline, centrally managing account access and permissions, defining and enforcing organization-wide defaults, having a central security and remediation function and plan, doing aggregated compliance and monitoring across all of the accounts in your organization, and finally, having cost optimization uh, and insights across your environment. So on behalf of all of us here, I want to thank you for coming out to our session. I hope you learned something both on what Goldman Sachs is doing in the real world with their production environment, as well as some the AWS best practice recommendations that we have as well. And so um, our contact information is up here on the screen. Uh, if you have further questions, you can feel free to email us. Um, we'll also be here a little bit at the end if you have specific questions that you may want to ask after the session. Um, as well as please, oh, I'll go back. Here you go. Finally, uh, please remember to complete the session survey in the mobile app. 
Uh, this really helps us figure out um, exactly how well we're doing, whether the session was helpful, uh, as well as any feedback you provide us. I read every single comment that folks provide, and it helps us shape better sessions for you. Um, so you know, your time here is well spent, as well, uh, as well as tell us whether this was helpful so we can bring it back uh, for future reInvents or for future other uh, AWS events as well. So thank you so much for coming out, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week here at reInvent. <laughs> <laughs>